All right, and welcome to the Psychology and Stuff podcast at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the Psychology Program and host of Psychology and Stuff. And I'm here today with Dr. Dennis Lorenz, who uh, actually, Dennis, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell people a little bit about your, um, your academic background, kind of where you went to school, things like that. Sure. All right. Uh, my college degree came from George Washington University, Washington, D.C., then I went on to graduate school at Cornell in Manhattan, and then I did a postdoctoral stint at the University of Pennsylvania and on to a number of different schools, bouncing around a little bit here and there, and finally came home to <laughs> UWGB in Wisconsin. So uh, is it currently home? or I mean, I know it's obviously currently home, but did, is this where you're from originally, or where are you from originally? No, actually, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in North Dakota, so oh, okay. not far from home, small town near Fargo, the famous movie Fargo, North Dakota. That's right. So, all right. So I lived in Minnesota when the famous movie Fargo came out, and so which is my home. So I, I was familiar with that movie and the, and the, uh, the accents, which... I, I feel feel compelled to say I don't have one of those accents. <laughs> I don't either. Yes. Um, good. And so when is it? Now, one, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on is because you have studied addiction for much of your life. Now, I guess before we – how long have you been at UW-Green Bay? This uh, is my 27th year. 27 years. 1990. 1990. Okay. And then, so have you, when did you get interested in addiction? Because you, you know, teach a, a pretty famous class of ours on drugs and behavior, but, and more recently you've been interested in um, gambling addictions. But yes. when did, when did you become interested in studying addiction? Well, I've been interested in the brain and behavior ever since an undergraduate when I was a psych major, by the way, went uh-huh. off to uh, get a degree in neurobiology and behavior with a minor in pharmacology. Okay. And so I've always been interested in regular neural activity and brain activity altered by drugs, too. Uh, most of my research in the early years was on natural physiological events of eating and sleeping. Uh, but after a while, I couldn't work with these uh, animals anymore. I became too sensitized to it in terms of... Uh, skin reactions and lung reactions. I just couldn't do that anymore. So uh, my interest then turned more toward human types of behaviors, and I still was very strongly interested in drug possibilities. Uh, And it was at that time that I also became interested in gambling, which is an addiction in its own right, uh, and I had the opportunity to be invited to and to join the Wisconsin Council on Problem Gambling. And I've been with that group for, oh, I think six, seven years now. And I've published in gambling behavior as well. So I, I think it's important because most of what we know about addiction is related to substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And behavioral addictions, of which I believe there are many, are slowly being recognized. And in fact, at this last one, the most recent DSM-5, they recognize for the very first time that gambling is a bona fide addiction right up there with substance abuse. Right. Now, there are other types of addiction as well, of behavioral types. I, I could list them. There's uh, 
addiction to sex, addiction to food, addiction to the social internet, uh, addiction to cell phones, uh, mm-hmm. addictions, a lot of addictions. People have them. People are born ready to be addicted. Right. Well, let's. I want to talk about both of those things, both the behavioral addictions. But I want to first start with the um, with the the substance related addictions, because I think one of the things that I run into a lot as a because my background's in counseling psych, and so I've worked with a lot of people with addictions. And one of the things I run into a lot with people who don't really know or understand much about addiction is this this question of, well, you know, why can't people just quit? You know, there's this uh, standard statement of, I mean, you know, that it that it must have something to do with willpower or that they must be just kind of weaker than other people or something like that. And so break to answer that question for people or try and break down what's going on in the brain that makes it so difficult for people to just quit, quote unquote. Okay. It's a very relevant question. It is important today. Uh, some of the major figures in the field of addiction and treatment are still battling it out with uh, ideas of whether it's a disease or not. That's mm-hmm. the major question. And uh, Vokov, who is one of the major uh, leaders, uh, proponents of the disease interpretation, is uh, very strongly convinced that a certain number of brain changes that take place that she's documented uh, lead one to a state where the frontal part, the more rational part of your brain, isn't working so well anymore. That's part of the disease. Hmm. So when you say, why doesn't this drug addict just get a grip and stop? Hmm. Well, that would take uh, the activity of the frontal lobe uh, working quite hard and convincing the rest of the brain that the behaviors they're engaged in are not productive. In fact, they're counterproductive. But as the addiction grows, these connections in the frontal part of the brain get weaker and weaker and weaker. So that's that's the explanation of the disease state. And that's, now, let me give you the other side of okay. the argument. That is, some people say, well, how do they ever pull out of addiction? Right. Well, they pull out of addiction by willpower. They get a grip with help oftentimes mm-hmm. sometimes they can do it on their own but most of the time if they're deeply in the throes of an addiction they need help and what happens is they slowly but surely get away from the addictive event i'm going to call it an event because sometimes it's a drug sometimes it's eating sometimes it's mm-hmm. gambling we'll right. call it an event as they begin to get stronger and pull away from the event, uh, the brain changes revert to a more normal state where they can be more logical and rational. Mm -hmm. And as they get closer to being weaned out of the addictive state, they can pull away, Mm -hmm. like a lot of people recommend they did in the first place. But when you're deeply in the throes of addiction, it's, it's extremely difficult even for the most uh, willpower. And that's why you often have people say who are smokers. They say, well, I've, I've quit four times. <laughs> I've quit five times. Uh, it's sort of the joke. Uh, why don't you just quit? And a smoker will say, well, of course I can quit. I've done it five times. Right. But they get drawn back in mm. because of pressures in their world. And it's one of the ways they can hide. Mm-hmm. Addicts are hiding. Hmm. 
Well, so, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so in some ways it feels like, especially if we're talking about that, you know, prefrontal cortex area of the brain, it, it sounds like we're talking about some impulse control problems too, that, yes. that ultimately this is a, yes. an issue where a person simply can't control. And this is where our interests, I think, intersect because I, as an anger researcher, part of what's going on is, is a failure to control uh, emotional impulses, you know, yes. that you have the impulse to lash out and you can't stop that. Um, just like you maybe have the impulse to drink, you want to stop that, but you can't because, and so you're saying that it's, it's, it's not just a willpower issue. It's that, that structure of the brain just is inadequate or because of the, the power of the addiction, it isn't uh, working properly. Yes. Yes. As a person becomes more addicted, certain pathways of the brain get stronger. How do you get yourself to the event? How much is it going to cost? You know, And it gets you thinking about it all day long, whether it's a drug or getting out to gamble. Uh, your brain start, spends a lot of time strengthening those pathways, and along the way, the judgment part of the brain, according to those who believe it's a disease, uh, just loses out. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't win the argument. Uh, you, you're battling with yourself. It's four o'clock. Should I go to the casino? And the uh, judgment parts of the brain says, well, you got a family. You know, you really ought to go home. And the, the gambling part says, oh, my God, they've got free food there. They've got, uh, I won last time. Oh, I'll just, I'll just stop by. I'll just, right. you know, 20 minutes, I'm out of there. So mm -hmm. uh, five hours later, they're thinking, what did I do? I was going home. And that happens so frequently. So that there is a little bit of that, maybe you shouldn't, part of the brain working. But a lot of it is oh, the excitement to get out there and escape. These people are escaping something. Okay. Typically. So in thinking then about... Um in thinking about how you treat and uh, you know a substance abuse problem or any kind of addiction, um, it, it sounds like a big part of that is find identifying ways to avoid some of the cues that are associated with yes. use. Um, because if you can't control an impulse when surrounded by the drug, yes. then you need to part of what you need to do is stay away from the drug. Yes, that's a big part, and in the pharmacology world we call them triggers okay and these triggers are sometimes tough to avoid it could be a pal of yours who enjoys the same event as you do and you see this person it could be somebody you work with mm -hmm. uh, it could be a neighbor it could be a spouse or a significant other so there are a lot of triggers and again we can go back and forth uh, on the television, you see beer ads. Well, the people who like beer, it's mm -hmm. it's like a green light. Mm -hmm. They're headed to the refrigerator uh, to get a cold one. Or if you're a gambler and you're trying to get away from these triggers, along comes a big city bus plastered with an Oneida sign on it. Nothing against Oneida and the casino there, but they, they advertise mm -hmm. too that these are triggers that set these brain pathways in motion that say, Mm -hmm. I've been really good lately. You know, 20 minutes at the casino and I'm out of there. And then you know the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, the triggers are there. How do you stay away? Here's another that uh, for people who use uh, drugs, 
they're encouraged after treatment to get away from the habitat. It's, it's huge. The environment's huge mm -hmm. in terms of reinforcing drug use. Uh, get away from that place. Uh, stay away from people you've been using drugs with. Uh, get a new apartment or something. Make everything new for yourself. Stay away from those contacts mm -hmm. as much as you can because you're right. It's easy to be drawn back in. And one, so there's another term because you, when you mentioned triggers, you made me think of this too. We talk a lot in in my abnormal psych course. We talk a lot about physiological cravings. Yes. Can you kind of define that for people? What do we mean? What is what is the what is the, the, I guess, narrow language around cravings? What are they? How do, what's going on in the brain when people feel, experience that? Well, first of all, we're born with these pathways that permit cravings. Okay. Because uh, our brain is set up to experience pleasure, and pleasure in nature mostly means success. Pleasure, finding foods that are pleasurable means you're eating typically healthy foods, although that's questions today. Uh, sex is another major pleasure that means the species continues. Mm -hmm. So we all have that, and what happens is that along the way, we encounter other pleasurable events. Mm -hmm. And our brain is designed, uh, as you well know, to remember. I mean, this goes way back to early 1900 psychologist Thorndike and on up through Skinner, mm -hmm. that if it feels good, do it again. And animals have that. It's a principle of behavior. We're designed to feel pleasure. We're designed to remember what brought us to that position. And what happens in these addictive events is that sometimes they're introduced serendipitously. Sometimes we stumble onto these. But everything happens. You've got the pleasure. You've got the memory. How did that happen? Let's do it again. Mm -hmm. And so here's a real tough question. When some people are exposed to that event, they get so excited as though it's never happened quite like this before, and they get drawn into an addictive state more than others. And the teen years are especially troublesome because teens are very vulnerable to these experiences. We could talk more about that later if you want, but people get drawn in. Now here's a question. People who have been exposed to alcohol say some, some like it. it. It does things to them as it does to all people. But the question is why is it that someone can go out and have a cocktail, maybe have a wine with dinner, and that's it. Another person can go out, have that glass of wine, they won't stop until four bottles later that they've closed the restaurant or the tavern and they stagger out. What is it about mm -hmm. some people can take it, enjoy it, the pleasure center works, they know how to get it, they know how to buy it, all that, and they can step away. Mm -hmm. Others, <clears throat> you've triggered an event that seems to go out of control. It's hard to stop once they've started the process. Right. And that's what we don't know. What is it about the addictive brain, the mind, that separates an addict from a casual user? Right. Well, that's a question I think my, my students ask all the time, which is why, why can some people 
you know, why can some people go through the college years and, and drink a lot, um, maybe and even binge drink and come out of it on the other end okay, and why do others uh, struggle with it? And although I do think one, I guess, interesting related note is that this is not the only place in, in the study of mental illness where this happens, right? I mean, we see that two soldiers can experience a very similar traumatic event and one develops PTSD and the other doesn't, yes. that there's a whole learning history there and there's a genetic predisposition and then yes. there's how you deal with it afterwards that helps explain some of those differences. Um, so no, we don't have the answer, but we we know that, um, I mean, this the same way some people can lose a loved one and go into a, an, a pretty intense depressive state and someone else can lose a loved one and yes, be sad and devastated, but come out of it differently on the other yes. end. And um, that's, uh, that's, why, <laughs> that's why we have psychology, right? Yes. To explain individual differences. I um, think part of it, you touched on part of it. Let me uh, get into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. the, the genetics of addiction, mm -hmm. uh, studies have ranged anywhere from 30 to 70% of the wow. genes are drawn. And so I've seen a number of studies that settled in around 50%. <laughs> so it means that children, offspring from parents who are passing along genes that predispose them to addiction makes it particularly tough if you get the genes. Now, if you also have parents, let's go back to drugs for easy mm -hmm. uh, comparison. If your parents are, say, alcohol users and smokers, and a child is predisposed to this, and they grow up wanting to be an adult like their parents, all kids want to be like their parents, <laughs> mostly, unless they're abused, but uh, there's a great deal of wanting to be like mom or dad. So you're getting the double pressure you're your genes are saying you're likely to be a candidate to mm -hmm. go a great distance in this addiction, and your parents are showing you how. Mm -hmm. They're not only showing you, they're telling you it's okay. Because right. what parents do is okay. Uh, so these people, if they get the genes, they get the parents, they get friends that do this, and right. the environment. Those are the four main factors. And if it all comes together, you've got a perfect storm here. Right. You've got an addicted person right and they can they have to reduce or reduce all of these vectors and they can except for the gene they can't right. walk away obviously from the genes but right. it's multifaceted okay so I want you to weigh in on on uh, a little bit of the de uh, debate for me too because you started this out by by pointing out that the DSM-5 made a point of of having gambling addiction essentially with the addictive disorders uh, at this point. Um, they, they really paved the way, as a lot of people have said, for um, a lot of uh, behavioral disorders. So what's, what's not yet in the DSM are many of the things you mentioned, like sex and eating and internet and, and things like that, those sorts of addictions. But gambling is. Um, now, I'm curious what your thoughts are on why some of those other addictions didn't make the cut. Do you have a sense for, for I that? Do. I do. I think it's a, a simple matter of data, sheer volume of data. Okay. Uh, the social network uh, addiction is so new. Mm -hmm. There are studies that are coming out, but gambling has been around a long time, relatively yeah. speaking. Right. Uh, drug abuse, much more. Mm -hmm. So I think as the data pile in, 
you're going to find remarkable similarities between the addiction states mm -hmm. and the addiction pathways in the brain. So here's another part of this that really brought gambling into the DSM is that almost uh, part for part, if you compare gambling mm -hmm. and uh, drug abuse, in gambling you've got tolerance, drug abuse you've got tolerance, in right. gambling you've got withdrawal effects, uh, drug abuse, withdrawal effect. gambling, you've got personal devastation that's just horrible. So mm -hmm. the comparisons are so close that brain studies have been done to show you that the same pathways are involved. So right. uh, I think what's going to happen with these other behavioral disorders is that they're going to come in slowly over the years. I don't know how long it's going to be before we have another DSM revision, but I assure you, by the next time, if it's 10, 12 years out, mm -hmm. others will join the crowd there because they're so similar. Right. And the results, the consequences are dire, mm -hmm. regardless of what kind of right. addiction a person is, uh, is afflicted yeah. with. Well, this is a, a spoiler for my abnormal psych students, but we one of the assignments I, I, I have them do, or one of the discussions we have in class, is to go through the gambling addiction or pathological gambling criteria and map it, map it on to a lot of the substance-related disorders because you're right, there's a ton of overlap when it comes yes. to... Um, and what's interesting is how you know, the gambling addiction doesn't, at least in the DSM criteria, doesn't use the same language, so it doesn't call it tolerance, it doesn't call it withdrawal, but it certainly describes it to a T, you know, and so it, yes. um, and there's lots of, you know, it's, it needs to gamble with more money to receive the same effect. I mean, that's, yes. that's uh, you know, tolerance. It's just yes. not using that same language. But I think another positive feature of the DSM with gambling is that they've made it a matter of degree. Mm-hmm moderate uh, or slight, moderate, and severe. Of course, uh, counselors won't be seeing someone with a moderate or right. slight gambling. It's, it's the severe that they will be encountering. Uh, but everything matches up. These gamblers are thinking, where can I get the money? It's all about the money. It's not so much about winning. Here's something I want to share with you. You think the, the prototypical gamblers is the person who wants to go out and win the bucks, win the million dollar lottery? No. No. A gambler wants money. Like an addict wants drugs. When they get the money, it takes them away into la-la land. That's the casino. That's the gambling. That's where they want to be, and money allows them to stay. And finally, what happens if they hit a jackpot? What do they do? Typically, if you watch these people at the one-armed bandit, which isn't one-armed anymore, watch them at these machines, you know, the bells go off, the whistles go off, and the clanging, and the quarters start coming out, and everybody's cheering, and what do they do 10 minutes later? They're putting every one of those quarters back in. They, they, they're so pumped, so rushed, by five, six hours later, they could have won four, five, six, eight hundred dollars, it's gone. Right. That, that was all part of the rush. It's mm -hmm. all about the money. It's not about winning. Winning gives them money, but they get money other ways by mm -hmm. cashing in their retirement funds, by stealing. It's, it's about the money that puts them in a position to hide. They're all mm -hmm. of these addicts are hiding from themselves, basically. Hmm. 
Very nice. Well, very interesting. If you want to learn more about uh, addiction, you can. Um, actually, I wanna, I'm going to put in a plug for a podcast, and I'm going to actually, Dennis, I'm going to send you the link in case you haven't seen it too. There's a podcast called Embedded out of NPR, and they did um, they have two episodes dedicated to substance abuse. One of them is called The House. It was their first ever uh, episode, and it is about um, uh, uh, basically an addiction or a, a the place in uh, I think Indiana where it's a home where people are dealing and using uh, various narcotics and or one particular narcotic and it is really really compelling it gives you a sense for everything we're talking about right now as far as how um, you know just how we've got, we've got people who are desperately trying to quit who are failing to quit um, and and suffering terrible terrible consequences as a result of it yeah. They did a follow-up to that episode called We Found Joy, which focuses on one particular person named Joy, who, um, or that's the name they give her, uh, who is recovering. And um, really compelling, interesting story. And at the time they did the follow-up, it was about her day-to-day struggle with, with trying to recover from this addiction. And, yeah. um, you know, and these are, it's actually painkillers that they're addicted to, um, but it's... Uh, Really interesting because her story is fascinating. So embedded, those two episodes are really, really uh, interesting. I've got one more to add to the list. Very quick one. I know we're running out of time. Very quick, and if you want to see a high-level professional trapped in this addiction process, watch the Netflix presentation of Nurse Jackie. Oh, really? Interesting. Well, Joy is actually a nurse, um, the Joy I was just talking about. And, and it started with her hurting herself at work. Um, that is, it could have so, been part of the story. Interesting. It might have been based on a real yeah. story. Interesting. I've not seen Nurse Jackie, I don't think. I've heard of it, but that's fine. All right, so it is time for our game, which we call Five Questions, where okay. uh, I'm going to ask you five questions drawn yeah. from a hat um, <laughs> unrelated to uh, to your work pretty much this is just stuff you okay. like doing that sort of thing so question number one what is your least favorite food least favorite oh gosh I'd have to say mac and cheese <laughs> wow my those are fighting words in my house <laughs> my, my son has a real problem with that now what what listeners don't know I'm guessing is that you are actually a very very good cook um, I cook and no, I've known that since um, since I got here. Right away, you used to you used to bring some food in every now. And we then. had some parties. Yeah. yeah. So, no mac and cheese though. So, um, well, here's another food question. Are you ready? Bring it on. I like food. <laughs> if you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh boy, that sounds like torture. <laughs> it's not mac and cheese. We know no. that. Much. <laughs> I I would say uh, you're getting into favorite food categories. I would say it would be. Thai food uh, recipe with multiple vegetables and some protein in it. All right. So some variety. Could be a curry, maybe. So I want the record to show that I drew a third question, which was also about food. (laughs) I put it back, drew a fourth question, which is also about food. (laughs) Really? (laughs) So what is your favorite place to eat? Uh, It would be a Thai restaurant, and today it's please kitchen. Oh, I don't know where this place is. Is this in town? It's over by a bagel shop on the east side. Okay. Near Locks and Stock and Bagels. Huh, I've not had that yet. We go to... There's a grocery store in that small area, too. We go to Bangkok 
Garden, I think. Bangkok Garden is good too. They're a stable, solid yeah. place. They've got a wonderful buffet for lunch they too. They do. I yeah. strongly recommend that. That's yep. good. I like their curry, which is why. But yeah, not another food question. Nope, no, we're good. We have, we're moving on from food. Um, do you have a favorite newspaper or blog or something like that? Oh, newspapers. I go through a number. I, I peruse the Press Gazette every day because I want to know local news. I wouldn't call it a favorite. I, I think I'm obliged to keep up on local news. And I catch some stories on AOL, some flashing news about what Trump is up to these days. It's always very discouraging, very discouraging to hear what he's up to. <laughs> Uh, but I think I need to stay current with that. Right. I, I read news, uh, science magazines, science news, uh, Scientific American to keep up on some of that news. Perfect. All right. Well, last question then, and it is, what is your favorite movie? Oh, gosh. Oh, it'd have to be a Bruce Willis here. Oh. Talking about probably Die Hard the original if you're going yeah. classic on me <laughs> no i love that movie i watched it at christmas time actually so. it is an annual <laughs> event for us many times yep. as well we we watch we watch it as one of our yearly christmas movies this year i actually convinced tina to watch lethal weapon for christmas Ooh. as well also takes place at christmas so yeah. that was fun well thank you so much for being here uh dennis uh, that was that was fascinating i think i might actually use this in class so abnormal psych students uh you're gonna get to listen to this so, my producer loves it when I accidentally crinkle newspapers. Um, okay, so I uh, got a couple things I need to say. Um, so, in addition to thanking Dennis for everything today, I also want to thank Kate Farley, our producer, and our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlice. I also want to talk about our next episodes. So, this is airing on the 15th, and what that means is in two days, We've got two live episodes that are happening. They will be uh, right here on campus in Union 103. Um, one at 1225 is going to be uh, Dr. Regan Garong talking about health psych. Uh, and then also we have uh, one at 105, which is going to be Dr. Kate Burns talking about social psych. So if you are listening and you are interested in attending those, you can uh, join us in Union 103 here at UW-Green Bay. Um, and I guess uh, that is all I've got for today. So thank you very much for listening. Thanks again, Dennis.